All right, so last, last week I said that I was doing something different. We would not be using as many scriptures last week. I said I was very uncomfortable with that, and this is the last week we're going to do that, one more week. Um, again, we're going to be building on all the scriptures that we've been studying and looking at for the past seven or six weeks. But um, again, uh, this, is, this will be different once again, so... Um, We started out by asking the question, what is worship? Now, I start out the book that will be hopefully available soon, asking the same question. And then the next word in it is stop. Let's ask that question again. What is worship? Sometimes it's the most obvious questions that we might struggle to feel like we can answer adequately. So at its most basic level, worship is all that the creature owes uniquely and exclusively to the creator. So the Hebrew and Greek both have a word for worship. The main word for worship is the word that means more literally to bow down. And so when a person bows down to the Lord, this posture, this outward posture, is to be the expression of an inward posture. And what is that posture that we have on the inside? It's not just a posture of praise and adoration. A lot of times we think of worship uniquely as praise and adoration. But in light of what we've said worship is, it should be the posture of unworthiness and confession. Confession is worship because it's, it's, the, it's the right response of the creature to the creator. Um, of dependence and petition. So when we, when we come to God as to our only provider and we make our petitions... That's an expression of worship, uh, of, of submission and obedience, of gratefulness and thanksgiving. All of that is the proper posture of the creature before the creator, and so all of that can be subsumed under the idea of worship. Now then we ask the next question, what is Sunday morning worship? And, and in order to answer that question rightly, we have to distinguish between what is internal worship, and we're defining that as what's all of life. Um, it's, it's common. So, when you get up in the morning and you get dressed, you know, if you ch- by what you choose to wear, that can be an, that can be an expression of internal worship. Uh, when you eat your breakfast, when you go to work, we do all things to the glory of God, and so all of life is worship in that sense. But there is a sense in which all of life is not worship. And don't forget that. Right? There is what we call external worship. And external worship is not, we're not talking about hypocritical worship. We're talking about acts of worship. Acts of worship that are worshipped by the very fact that you do it. So if you pray, you're worshipping. If you pray to a false god, you're worshiping. 
If you pray to God and your heart's not in it, you're worshiping. Right? Now, it's not true or it's not true worship. God doesn't, is not pleased with that worship, but it's worship because prayer is an act of worship. Um, work is not an act in itself of worship. So if we take external worship, this idea of external worship, and we, now can, we can divide it between, uh, first we have private external worship. So when you're at home alone, you might say, the Bible talks about the hour of prayer. And the Bible talks about kneeling down for prayer. It talks about raising your hands in prayer. Um, Jesus said, talked about going into your closet. I, did I say that already? For prayer. Um, Jesus himself went out and sought places alone to pray. Peter went up onto the housetop to pray. So you see, there was a set-apart time for this holy activity that we call worship. And egalitarianism today has largely dispensed with anything uniquely holy. All things are equally common, or all things are equally holy. And so we talked about that idea of, yeah, so we all bring our coffees to church and enjoy, right, enjoy our coffees. Well, we worship, and because there's not, where does that come from? And again, we talked about not legalism, we talked about not judging, we talked about a lot of things. But what's the reasons for how we approach these times. Um, we talked about uh, the distinction between the common and the holy. And then we, this private external worship, that's one thing. But then the Bible talks about external, what we'll call temple worship. It, the Bible uses phrases like in church. And people are like, well, the church is everywhere. The church is all the time. No, the church is uniquely now. Now. So there's worship that happens in church on the Lord's Day. And it's not this day that makes the worship holy, but what we do on this day that makes the day special, essentially, and the fact that the Lord was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. So we gather in church on the Lord's Day to observe God's instituted ordinances. Then we could say, therefore, that this, what we're doing, is doubly holy. It is not only external worship, it is external temple worship. Now, I'll say this too. Because this activity is set apart as holy, therefore the time is set apart as holy. Right? This time, from 10.15 to 12, it's a holy time. Because what we do in it. This place at 304 East Jackson Street becomes, as it were, a holy place. Not because it's holy, because what we're doing here. Now then we come to this redemptive historical survey of worship. We begin with primeval worship, which we looked at Cain and Abel. Remember them, Seth and his line, and Noah. So we saw in this first part that Worship is a calling upon the name of the Lord. Meditate on that. Worship is invoking. It is calling upon the name of the Lord. Connected in the Old Testament with offerings on an altar. So that was a formal expression for worship. Now, when we go back so early as Cain and Abel, we begin to ask, well, where did this worship come from? All of a sudden, you see Cain and Abel building an, uh, building an altar. It doesn't say that, but we 
I explain in the book why that is so. And bringing offerings. So, where did that come from? Did they just invent, did they invent altars and offerings? And we learned that no. No. They knew that they were obligated to pray. Every man in the whole world, that woman knows that they're obligated to pray. And call on the name of the Lord by the law of their creation. But no one does that in a way that's acceptable to God. How then can we know how to worship God in a way that's acceptable to him? Well, the confession calls the first natural worship, and the Baptist confession calls this religious worship. God must reveal to us his worship. Worship, therefore, is not a place for us to be creative. We, we use just very practically the expression or the title, perhaps, wor- pastor of worship arts. And we, we said, maybe that's not so appropriate, given that worship is not a place for uh, artistic creativity. That's not the point. Worship is a place for us to do what God told us to do. To worship as he revealed his worship to us. Worship, as it were, is his property. Worship is God's property that we need to be careful about trespassing on. So, in no place are we more dependent upon God than we are in worship. Now, I'm not quoting scripture in verse here. We did that. We did that. So I'm reviewing, and I trust we can remember some of what we talked about. We come then to patriarchal worship. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the first thing we looked at is, once again, they call upon the name of the Lord. But what is this name that they call upon? Remember God's name. He revealed his name to Adam and Eve, we know, Yahweh, because they called on that name. Then he revealed it further to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then he revealed his name further to the Israelites at Mount Sinai and when he brought them out of Egypt. And then he revealed that name most fully to us in Jesus Christ. And so when we call upon his name, we are calling upon one who has revealed himself progressively more and more fully to us. So worship is therefore always a response to him who reveals himself to us as he does that. So in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob narratives, we see them always building altars. And where do they build altars? Wherever God revealed himself to them. Or wherever they had seen a new and a fresh reminder of his covenant promises. And so we we saw this, and this is so important. True worship, and that's what we're after, can only happen ever in a context of a dialogue that God initiates. God speaks, we respond. God makes his name known to us, and what do we do? We call upon that name that he has made known to us. It's beautiful, it's it's simple, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And so what we want to do is in our services affirm this this word that God speaks and this response that we then offer in worship. Temple worship, therefore, must be centered around the inscripturated word because it is in this word that God has revealed to us the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. 
and so to, to the extent that our worship is true worship, there needs to be the, the scriptures in a central place. Then we come in our survey through redemptive history to Old Covenant worship. And we saw in Old Covenant worship that temple worship is fundamentally communal. And, you know, all of a sudden, God creates a nation. He forms a people. And it's through this covenant that, 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 that um, ties, unites, that cements this people into one group called Israel. The people of God, the covenant people. And so now, uh, you cannot worship fully. You cannot worship God acceptably and fulfill your obligation to worship to God unless that worship is communal. Which is a rebuke to our individualistic mindset and culture. To deny, to deny the absolute essential nature of the assembly is to deny the communal shape of worship itself. So we looked at Exodus and, and, and how people and nation, we saw that the firstborn uh, were, uh, the Levites were taken instead of all, the, so the firstborn represented the whole nation of Israel. Then God took the Levites instead of the firstborn. And so those Levites, as they performed the temple worship, represented the communal nature of worship. We saw that the high priest goes into the temple with the 12 tribes on his shoulders and over his heart, representing the communal nature of worship, which would be fulfilled in the new covenant. We saw that every male, three times a year, was to appear together before the Lord at his temple. It is not possible to worship God acceptably or to fulfill our obligation of worship unless that worship is expressed congregationally. Temple worship, second of all, is covenantal. And I hope that's no longer just some fancy word. I hope that's like, you hear that word and you say, oh, right. what does that mean? It just means that God, covenant is ultimately about relationship. A relationship that God has set the parameters for, the boundaries for, and that he has entered into and called you into with him. But how do we maintain this relationship? How do we live out and experience this relationship? It is through worship. And so worship is the maintaining of, and it is the enjoyment of, this covenant relationship that we have with God in covenant dialogue with him. Why do we come here every Sunday? Why do we do this? What is this about? Then we saw also in Old Covenant worship, uh, the temple choir. And remember, remember the Levitical choirs, and we saw how the Levitical choirs are fulfilled today. And we saw that whether you like it or not, you're a member in the choir. That's, that's just the way it is. And so when we sing together in temple worship, we are a priestly temple choir, and what are we doing? Calling on the name of the Lord together. As a choir, proclaiming the Lord's name to ourselves and to one another as we sing. And so uh, several of you have have said to me how you've seen congregational singing in a new light. Is what this is. 
Um, it's not up to us to whether we feel like we're a singer or not. It's, it's something we, it's a birthright, brothers and sisters. It's a spiritual birthright that we have in Christ. And in the Old Covenant, it was a physical birthright as far as the temple choir went. Now it's the spiritual birthright of us all. And so then we finally looked in Old Covenant worship at this reality that a temple is a house. A temple is just a fancy name for the house of deity. And so that requires the distinction between God's omnipresence and his special presence. God is everywhere. God is not everywhere. Um, God is everywhere equally. God is not everywhere equally. He is here. He is here at his temple, at his house. And so that means if God has a special presence, that means that we are required to worship him by drawing near. See, we, we can say, well, God is wherever I go. Yes, but no, God is, God is in some places specially. And so when we worship, we go and we draw near to where he is, at his house. That's what we do when we come here. And then finally, we come to new covenant worship. When we come to new covenant worship, we see that new covenant worship is new and it's old. In other words, what I mean by that is the new covenant advances the theme of worship in terms of fulfillment. So there's a lot of fulfillment. The new covenant is all about fulfillment. So the altar, we have an altar from which the priests of the old temple had no right to eat. The sacrifice is fulfilled in Christ, our once for all sacrifice. The temple is fulfilled in Christ, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he, as he tabernacled among us, the priesthood is fulfilled in Jesus who offered up himself and who now intercedes at the right hand of God for you and for me. And we see the fulfillment of worship in the fact that we are all now regenerate worshipers, born again, worshiping our Lord and Savior. But the New Covenant does not add anything in terms of theology. And I, I, I still tremble a bit when I, bit when I say that, because I, maybe I missed something. But I don't think the New Testament adds anything in terms of our theology of worship. It should be fully developed by the time we get through the Old Testament. Temple worship, therefore, today, must be shaped and that word shaped is a really important word. By the covenantal, the communal, and the dialogical nature of worship. What do we do here? How do we do it? And so we looked at the parts of worship in the light of our theology of worship. What are the parts of worship? And I love how simple this is, brothers and sisters. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper in the Lord's Supper, God has a visual word for us. He speaks to us through the visual word accompanied by the written and spoken word. And we respond by giving thanks and calling on his name in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, as I have argued, is the central act of temple worship. The central act of temple worship. Speaking of our calling on the name of the Lord, 
It is then centered around God's word, which he speaks to us. Um, Baptism, which we will also celebrate this morning, is God's visual word to us, uh, accompanied by the written and spoken word. And then in baptism, we have a calling on the name of the Lord. What did Peter, I can't ever remember who it was that said it to, to, to Paul. Ananias said to Paul, get up and be baptized and call upon his name. Calling upon his name. The, the next ingredient of temple worship is the reading and the preaching of the word of God. Uh, the next ingredient is prayer. And we talked about how prayer is not entertaining. It's like, the, it's like the least entertaining of anything, as far as all that goes. If it's talking about performance, or it should be, it should be a performance. And so prayer is oftentimes minimized in church. Um, there used to be long pastoral prayers. Well, people couldn't stop being able to handle that because we, we lost what worship was. Congregational singing. And so more and more it's become, it's become more people sing in front and, and maybe there's lights on up front and it's darker outside. And now I'm talking about other, but, but we've talked about what our problems might be. How, how are we? Where do we need to be challenged? We see these things, how they work out. And I'm also trying to help us see why we do what we do. Why do we do what we do? And why is it beautiful? And finally, we talked about the congregational amen. And I want to say again, that's not a distinct part of worship. If someone doesn't have the congregational amen, they're not leaving out an essential part of worship. But I, I just, I, I think it's worthwhile putting there in the list. All right, then we looked at, finally, we, that was completed our survey of worship. Then we looked at gender roles in worship. And we saw that the women are to remain quiet in church. No individual speaking contributions. And we saw that that is a safeguarding of the woman's distinct glory. We saw that that is an honoring of the woman. And her role that God gave to her. We saw that for a woman to take to herself the glory of a man is by definition shameful. Whereas for a man to take to himself the distinct glory of the woman is by definition shameful. And so we talked about the man's role in temple worship in the garden before the fall, as well as in Old Covenant worship. Paul said, the women are to remain silent in church, as the law says. And we talked about the beauty of that. So now, let me ask you this question. What, what does the fact that women are to remain silent in church given their unique glory, given their distinct glory, what does the fact that they're to remain silent in church tell us about the nature of temple worship? And I believe it's this. All individual speaking in temple worship ought to be either a reading or teaching, an exhortation from God's authoritative word, or it ought to be a response to that word 
by calling on his name and leading the congregation together in calling on his name. Because that is what worship is, because that's what we do when we gather in church. Therefore, a woman, in view of her distinct glory, ought to remain silent. Paul said, I want the men in every place, in every church, to pray. And of course, also to read and to teach the scriptures. And I would suggest to you, there is nothing else Paul wanted the men to do in every place. Finally, we looked at the regulative principle of worship. We saw that we are, the regulative principle of worship says this, we are only to do in worship. Okay, that's really important. Because after all, it, what, are we, what should we do in worship? Answer, worship, right? We are only to do in worship, worship. Now remember, all of life is worship. There's a lot of things you can do to the glory of God that edify others that are not prescribed external uh, acts of worship. Uh, so we're only to do in worship those things commanded by the word of God. Directly or required by good and necessary inference. I'd put baptism in that category. Um, so moreover, we must do all that the Bible requires. We're not free to leave things out. Now, does this judge everyone? I mean, again, I, I believe we're not free to leave the Lord's Supper out when we worship. Now, for many years, we left it out three weeks out of the four in the month. I believe that was not the best. It wasn't right. Nevertheless, I'm not worried about standing before the judgment seat, right? And this, this is where we grow, we learn. And yes, in a sense, I might repent of that. Lord, I'm sorry that I, I, we, we, we did that. Um, but I'm glad that we celebrate weekly. Um, what about the free principle of worship? The regulative principle or the normative principle, what we thought for clarity, let's talk, call it the free. The free principle says anything that's edifying, anything that glorifies God, uh, therefore, really, anything that's internal worship and that will build you up is appropriate in this time. And I would, I would challenge that. Again, we may be uncomfortable because of what we're used to. We might say, I don't think we should have a skit up here that's communicating biblical truth. Even if it's communicating biblical truth, it's a skit, it's drama. That feels uncomfortable to me. Well, that's not good enough. That answer is not good enough, right? We need to have a theology of worship that says why we are uncomfortable with that or why we don't believe we should include that in our worship. Because remember, a skit, someone can go up and do a drama Holy to the glory of God. Holy to the glory of God. As an act of worship. That skit might be wholly edifying to the people watching it. And yet I believe there's a reason. Given the prescribed parts of worship, God did not prescribe drama for his worship. And second of all, given our theology of worship, that shows why that's not appropriate in worship. 
Now, we talked then about special presentations, dramatic presentations, uh, a dance. Uh, we talked about special music. We talked about sharing times in the, in the time of worship. We talked about an offering. Now, it, it may be helpful at this point, and I really want to point this out. This is not so much review. I talked about it a little bit last week. It may be helpful at this point to observe that special presentations of any kind, sharing times in church, or taking an offering, they can all be, they can all be left out of the church's service of worship without any disobedience to God's word. I want you to think about that. We can leave them all out and have no disobedience to the word of God. There are very few, and perhaps not any, who hold to the free principle, who would argue that any of those things are required parts of Sunday morning worship. In other words, if we don't have those, we're, we're wrong. We're in the wrong. On the other hand, I would point this out, brothers and sisters. A church may never choose to leave out the Lord's Supper. The reading and the preaching of the Word of God. Prayer. Congregational singing without being guilty of negligence and disobedience. Now then, at the very least, what we see here is that there is a distinction between the essential and the non-essential parts of worship. Think about that. There are certain essential parts of worship that cannot be left out without disobedience. These other things are non-essential. We at least have that distinction. What I have argued and believe is that what we actually have is not a distinction between essential and non-essential parts of worship, but rather between those things that are parts of worship, and those things that are not. They're not prescribed parts of worship. The regulative principle of worship, brothers and sisters, is not primarily about what we cannot do. It is about the beauty of something that we get to Pursue. We we ought to be on a quest. We ought to be pursuing that which we have seen to be beautiful. And so we come to an order of service. Uh, A while back I read to you a more liturgical order of service. Uh, Liturgical by a limited definition. We are liturgical here, wholly liturgical, because we have forms. We, we have hymn books, right? We have forms of words we read. We have an order of service. So, but there's a more liturgical form, but we're just going to give a simple one. 
Now, Mike, watch this. Now, this is what, the, this is what you know, we're, we're proposing, very little change. But we want to uh, invite your feedback on this. Okay, we'll begin with welcome and announcements and with whatever else goes in that time. So this morning, uh, you know, we said a few other things. And we, we kind of, those were important. I hope we could do those things with a worshipful spirit as an expression of internal worship. I hope those things were edifying to the whole body. So that was good, valuable, and we got it, and then we were done with it. And then we had a call to worship. And again, I'll even say this sermon is very different um, because ultimately I'm, I'm a bit contradicting the beauty of what this should be right in, in this morning. So, so it, normally we will open up the scriptures and expositionally teach it. I can't wait next week to get back to John, John chapter 15. So we'll, we'll begin with welcome and announcements. Then we're going to call it uh, call to worship. It's the same thing we've always been doing. Don't get worried by the change of title. Um, but, that, but that new label is simply to express what's happening now. And so the call to worship will be our congregational scripture reading. God speaks. And that will begin and set apart all that follows. Once we start worship, we're not going to stop worship until we're stopped worshiping. That's what we're going to do. Um, Then we're going to respond to what God has spoken to us in his word with congregational singing. So far, again, no change. Um, Then, after the congregational singing, we'll have a scripture reading. This is what Ed has been doing at the beginning of one anothering anyway. So nothing new. It'll just be the scripture reading. God speaks. And we may have other men uh, who are members of the members, baptized members, um, assigned scripture readings. And then after uh, the scripture reading, uh, possibly a time for exhortations. From, from men, baptized members, who would speak with at ahead of time. And those exhortations should be based in Scripture, which was the original goal of one another in. And so after the Scripture reading, and perhaps any exhortations, perhaps not, would be prayer. And that would be a, a sort of what, what used to be called a pastoral prayer. But we then respond to the scripture reading we heard and to perhaps any exhortations. And in that prayer, any requests that have been shared during the week or maybe even uh, brought up immediately prior to our service uh, in, the, in the welcome and announcements times, uh, those can be prayed for. Uh, many of the requests that maybe we've, we, are tr- we are used to having here, we might, we might at times say, okay, well, um, let's, we're going to share that during our weekly prayer, or our um, midweek prayer. And so we want to encourage you for, for a lot of the praying and sharing of requests and that to come out to prayer meeting, uh, which we have twice a month for that. After uh, the congregation responds in prayer, we will hear from God's word in the message from, from Scripture. After the message, we'll respond to God with congregational singing. After which, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is God speaking to us. And there's always a scripture reading associated with the Lord's Supper. As well as before we take the the Lord's Supper, the meal, we pray, thanking him for this meal he has provided to us 
through his son and his shed blood and broken body. And then we will sing congregationally and respond again, and then conclude the service with the benediction, which is a scripture reading, and then the congregational amen, which is our response, not only to that benediction, but to all that God has spoken to us and to all that we have affirmed in singing and in prayer throughout the service of worship. Now, I I just want to say a couple things. The only real change here from the last two years of services since COVID is one anothering. Uh, So one anothering is is tweaked a bit, and some of what we have done in one anothering, we want to put in our prayer meetings. So we encourage you to come out for prayer meetings. Um, The additional change, if you go back prior to COVID is we're not including the offering. You see the offering box in the back. Um, and we'll not, we're not including, therefore, the accompanying special music that would go with the offering. So, But that's been, we've already been doing it that way for two years, so you're not going to feel that change. That's just, we're going to go on. So basically what I'm saying is, services are the same. Okay? Um, and, and, and yet... What we're trying to do is to see what we've already been doing in a, in, a, in, a, in a light, in a context, and to affirm more proactively what it is that we do each Sunday. And that's why we're doing this here. I would have preferred to do some of these messages at a, at, during a Sunday school hour or somewhere else, um, but we need everyone here to hear these things because it affects us all. And so that's why we're doing it here. I would suggest in this, in this order that we have up there, there is a simplicity and a beauty about that order that highlights in every way the dialogical, the communal, and the covenantal nature of worship. This order of service that you see on the screen includes only in your handout those parts of worship that God has, uh, only those parts of worship and all of those parts of worship. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm mostly interested if you believe we've missed anything essential. If we missed anything God has prescribed, um, then that's, that's a big deal. Have we missed anything that God has prescribed in his word? I also want to say this, and I hope, you, I hope you're coming to see now that this whole thing for now is, I, 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 just, I just, if I can use the word hate, I hate can'ts. I hate a can't-oriented Christian life. There are can'ts, thou shalt not, but, but, but that's not the orientation of our life. Our lives are oriented around can't, yes, but no, more primarily and preeminently, what we pursue. And so this is what, this encapsulates what we're pursuing. And I would suggest, given the beautiful simplicity of that order of service, maybe then we can see, because some of us, I think, could still be struggling with, with say, well, I don't know, really? No special music? I, I mean, I'd be all right if we had it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave the church if we don't have it, but I wouldn't have a problem if we have it. And, 
And I, I just wonder, my, my thought is, because special music has been good. It can be good. We can be edified. But there's a, such a beautiful simplicity, commun, com, commonality, communal nature to this, covenantal, that when I see the beauty of it, and I feel that, I begin to feel, and I'm not about feelings, I think it's rooted in the theology, but I begin to feel that other traditional elements that we've grown up with culturally, um, that, that, we've, that we've just experienced all our lives, that they might begin to actually feel, maybe surprisingly, rather foreign, or even out of place. So we come to the conclusion of this series. The church may and should gather for other things besides worship. And these things ought to glorify God. They ought to edify the body. And in that sense, they are worshipful. You could think of things like prayer meetings, Sunday school, uh, Bible studies, gathering to sing hymns, Praise and testimony times, gatherings for fellowship and for one anothering. There's all sorts. There's no end to the things. There is an end, but there are, there's a lot of things that we can do as a body that's not, that's not temple worship. And we ought to gather to do those things. And I want to exhort you to, to gather to do those things. When we have a hymn sing, you're part of the temple choir. Come out to sing. Right? Don't, don't, don't neglect the gathering of God's people for these other important and good things. But the, the regulative principle of worship as a whole does not apply in those cases. The regulative principle applies to that temple worship that is the formal calling on the name of the Lord in covenant dialogue with him. And so let me just draw a distinction. What's a prayer meeting? A prayer meeting is, by definition, external worship. When you pray, you're engaging in act of worship. What sets our Sunday morning worship apart from prayer meetings is the careful emphasis on the dialogical principle. And therefore, what does that mean? We include all, all, all without exception of the prescribed parts of that dialogue. The Lord's Supper, the reading and preaching of the word, prayer, congregational singing. It's also the time when the whole church is gathered. It's the Lord's Day. It's set apart as holy. And we include only the prescribed parts of this dialogue. We we choose not to include special presentations, the offering or the collection. And that's, that's debatable among those who hold the regulative principle of worship. Um, but we talked about that before. And sharing and testimonies are reserved for other times. And again, this is not, we got it all right. We're gonna, I'm going to say that in a minute. I'll hold that for later. So let me ask you this. Why do we go to church on Sunday morning? To be with other Christians. To sing songs. To pray. To learn things from God's word. Have you ever like, why well, go to church to do these things? 
Well, all those answers are true as far as they go. They just don't go far enough. We need to be able to give an answer that is fuller and deeper. I'll use the word more robust. We need to give an answer that, that is that. And so we need to be able to affirm in your handout the prescribed place that each of these activities has within that holy context of temple worship. A true understanding of this regulative principle will warn us against any hint of coming here and saying, I like going to church because I I get to sit in a pew and sit there and observe and watch and take it in, see, see what happens, right? That's not what happens here. It will, it will call us to engage diligently in every part of temple worship as active participants in a running covenantal dialogue. So we come to the last three little points here, simplicity and purity. The temple rituals done away with, you could say that worship used to be really complicated. Um, And so all that complication, as we might see it, I mean, they saw it as beautiful. It wasn't like, oh, complicated stuff, we've got to do all this. They, They embraced it. Look, look, the psalmist loved God's worship at his temple. But there was a sense in which it was more complex in terms of the ritual. Um, And so, new covenant worship is, in a sense, simpler. But, the fundamental nature of what temple worship is, substance, and the fundamental categories in which worship is expressed, its parts, God speaks, we respond. God's word, prayer. Brothers and sisters, worship, temple worship is this. God's word, prayer. God's word, prayer. That's what it is. Simple. And so the regulative principle emphasizes the simplicity of temple worship under both covenants. We can say then that the simpler the worship is, the surer we can be of its purity. What do you think about that? The simpler it is, the surer we can be of its purity. What did I say? The purity of the worship. I'm talking about external worship. We should not confuse that with the purity of the worshiper's what? The worshiper's heart. What did Jesus say? Blessed, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Where do we see him most fully, this side of heaven? In and through worship, as we respond to his word spoken to us. The Apostle Paul exhorts his spiritual son, Timothy, says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And David asks this question, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? 
And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. 2000, about 1900 years ago, the Christians, the churches put together, at least in one part of, of the world, a, a, a manual on the Christian life and practice. And they gave these instructions concerning worship. On the Lord's own day, gather together and break bread and give thanks. Having first confessed your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one who has a quarrel with a companion join you until they have been reconciled so that your sacrifice may not be defiled. For this is the sacrifice concerning which the Lord said, In every place and time, offer me a pure sacrifice. For I am a great king, says the Lord. This is from Malachi chapter 1. And my name is marvelous among the nations. So when we say that the simpler the worship is, the surer we can be of its purity, that is not a justification for the self-righteous attitude that says my worship is purer than your worship. God forbid. It only reflects the legitimate desire, which, which I will affirm, that all the churches that do things differently than we do it, they have the legitimate desire too. And brothers and sisters, the reality is that you who may even disagree with me on something, you may have a purer heart than I have in worship. And what matters more, it, what matters most is not the how do we worship, but the purity of the heart of our worship. That matters most. Having said that, we must not think that the purity of my heart guarantees I'm doing everything right. And this has happened over and over in the Christian church. And when it even comes to our individual Christian lives, we say, well, I have a pure heart. I have a desire to honor the Lord and I have the right motives. And so therefore what I'm doing must be right. Not necessarily. When we say that the simpler the worship is, the surer we can be of its purity. That simply reflects the legitimate desire that our worship, both internally and externally, should be wholly conformed to the will of God. To quote one author, he says, To worship in the way that we please, without proof that it is God's will, is to worship our own will rather than God. And what must be vigorously stressed is that there is no other stable safeguard of the purity of true worship if this principle is abandoned. Uh, let, Let me say this, and this is so important. I circled it, starred it, bracketed it. This is important. When we include, when we include only the essentials, of what God has prescribed for his worship. We're never missing out on anything. 
And I think that's something we often can feel like, well, well, then we're missing out on a lot of other things that could be really good. And I say, no, we're not, we're not missing out on anything. Worship is not thereby impoverished, but rather revealed in its true fullness and richness. That's simplicity and purity. Then more briefly, simplicity and universality. If the regulative principle is a biblical principle, where do you think it'll work? Everywhere, right? If it's a biblical principle, it should be easily applied everywhere. And in fact, it is the very simplicity of what God has prescribed for his worship that fits it for every conceivable context. It's so simple, it works everywhere. (laughs) And so how wonderful it is to be reminded that the lamb who was slain has purchased for God with his blood men and women and children from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. How wonderful it is to know that these that he has purchased have all been called out to be his worshipers. It's what he has called us out to be. It's why we gather. Because it's, it's what he called us for. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And God's people said, Amen? No, I mean, you're not used to that. But I mean, do you want to say amen to that? That is, that is beautiful. This is worship. This is what we gather to do. Finally, lastly, simplicity and beauty. Perhaps now, after these eight weeks, we're in a position to fully appreciate the beauty of what we find in, in the Baptist Confession, this statement of the regulative principle of worship. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. That he is just, good, and does good to all. And is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. May the Lord 
enable us to see the goodness, the beauty of his instituting, limiting, and prescribing his own property, his own worship. And may the Lord then give to us humility, wisdom, and joy in seeking to faithfully apply this biblical principle to the covenant worship of God's covenant people. Our Father in heaven, um, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word and that it is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness, not least to that most holy of all activities, which is temple worship. And Lord, I pray that, that as we pursue this, this beautiful thing that you have called us out of this world to, as we pursue this, Lord, Lord, enable us each and every week always more and more and more to embrace and to love what it is that we do. May we not be a people who ever pat ourselves on the back, guard us from that, from that horrific sin May you guard us against all all judgmentalism. May you put in our hearts love. And, And may you also put in our hearts a striving after you that loves in every way to seek to bring our services of worship into conformity to your word as as we understand it. Lord, we pray for the future of this church. And as we pray for this church, we pray for all the many churches here in this nation and around the world that are gathering each week to worship you. Many of them in in different ways, not, not, not even knowing or thinking of principles like this, but where you are present by your spirit and where they are worshiping you from pure hearts. And we just pray that, that in every place your name, which is great among the nations, is indeed exalted and honored. And we ask these things for your sake and for our joy and, 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 uh, and gladness in Jesus' name. Amen.